Saturday, everybody, and welcome back to Rounding the News. My name is Liam Sturgis, and I will be your host for today's show presented by Rounding the Earth. Now, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can support the show by sending us a rumble rant or a tip on Rockfin. But even more importantly, I invite you to join us over on our locals community that is roundingtheearth.locals.com where I have posted the show notes for today's episode along with the links to watch the show live on YouTube, Rumble, and Rockfin. Now, this week we are continuing our investigation into FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, a Rounding the News special investigation undertaken to bolster Matthew Crawford's viral Substack article titled A Grand Unified Theory of the FTX Disaster. If you have not read it, do not delay any longer. So, let's go over this again. The Road to FTX. Last week, we investigated the origins of the enigmatic yet flowery effective altruism, the philanthropic ideology that spawned the embattled Sam Bankman-Fried and his cryptocurrency ventures FTX and Alameda Research. We found that in large part, the Alameda, sorry, the EA movement was started based on the writings of a quote-unquote radical utilitarian named Peter Singer. His work inspired a young Oxford student named William McCaskill to start a series of ventures seeking to optimize the effectiveness of his philanthropy by carefully choosing which causes deserved his money most. As he brought his friends and colleagues on board, a number of organizations were formed. Giving What We Can, 80,000 Hours, Center for Effective Altruism, and Effective Animal Activism, which was shortly after renamed uh, to Animal Charity Evaluators. We also explored the inaugural Effective Altruism Global Summits, starting in the summer of 2013. Early participants in these events, beyond the plethora of EA ventures in and around McCaskill's direct influence, included notable members of the social media, artificial intelligence, and cryptocurrency fields, such as Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. Furthermore, it became clear that Musk in particular plays a key role in funding the very institutions at the University of Oxford, which house virtually all of the key effective altruism organizations, unified until its recent renaming under the Center for Effective Altruism. So if you haven't yet uh, read, watched, or listened to last week's episode, I highly recommend you do as we, this week, continue to build on the foundational knowledge we have garnered so far. Now, let's see. One of the things that became clear during our investigation was that we may, in fact, be following just one of several storylines that convene early on to lead us to the COVID-19 crisis, the FTX meltdown, and the rest 
of a very complicated spider web unraveling before us. So let's get back to the big question. Here is the final paragraph of last week's report. I quote, as I write this report, the elephant in the room is looming larger and larger. One of the names that continues to recur throughout the story is open philanthropy. What is this ever-present organization, and what is its role in connecting effective altruism and biosecurity? To answer this two-part question, we must once again return to the origin story of a prominent yet less understood character that has helped shape not only the effective altruism movement, but the fabric of today's day-to-day -to -day society as a whole. Behind open philanthropy is a man named Dustin Moskovitz. Heard of him? I have. Seen his face? Maybe. I hadn't myself until recently. So, Dustin Moskovitz. A tale of sex, money, genius, and betrayal. I wish I could say I came up with that title, but I didn't. Until he resurfaced on my radar less than a year ago, Moskovitz was known to me as a minor character in the story of the founding of Facebook. In 2009, a book was published titled The Accidental Billionaires, The Founding of Facebook, A Tale of Sex, Money, Genius, and Betrayal. And if you follow along in the show notes, which are included in the first link in the description, second link if you're watching on YouTube, which will take you to our locals, uh, the pinned post where the show notes are included in there, and you'll find a link to our Amazon affiliate account uh, where you can buy the book if you want. Um, Amazon is part of the problem. Uh, and uh, in the short term, we're making a few dollars by selling you some books. If you happen to know an independent bookstore who we can partner with instead, we'd be very interested. But if you did want to buy the book, that's one way you can do it and support the show. I haven't read it, but I have ordered my copy. So instead, I've been a big fan of the movie rendition titled The Social Network ever since I watched it back in 2013. Who you have here on screen is Mark Zuckerberg, portrayed by Jesse Eisenberg on the left, and Dustin Moskovitz on the right, portrayed by Joseph Mazzello. I like the movie a lot. Uh, I find it both entertaining and informative. The semi-fictionalized narrative focuses primarily on Mark Zuckerberg and a few key relationships. You have Eduardo Saverin, the Facebook, as it was then called, <laughs> first chief financial officer who was squeezed out of the company in a stock dilution scheme. You have Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss and Divya Narendra, whose idea for a social network website Zuckerberg purportedly took and ran away with. You also have Sean Parker, founder of the industry-changing online music-sharing platform Napster and Facebook's founding president. Then there are a couple of characters who appear for quick but important scenes to accelerate the Facebook's rise to glory. Some familiar faces here. You have Bill Gates, Microsoft co-founder who delivers a presentation at Harvard attended by Zuckerberg and Saverin. Uh, Eduardo Savern, where Gates is suggested to have taken notice of Zuckerberg in the crowd. 
You have Larry Summers, president of Harvard University and former U.S. Treasury Secretary, who declined to assist in the Winklevoss twins' attempts to slow down slash stop Zuckerberg's rollout of the Facebook. You have then Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal, Palantir Technologies, and the Founders Fund, who was convinced by Sean Parker to become the first outside investor in Facebook. Of course, none of these people meant anything to me back in 2013 or during any of the rewatchings that I had gone through in subsequent years. All I knew about Teal was that he was a rich gay man. Gates seemed a philanthropic, if largely irrelevant man. And Parker was a troubled nerd with whom I shared common interests in music and later cancer immunotherapy. More on that later. That was then. This is 2022. Now, the Gates, Teal, Zuckerberg, even Summers, all take center stage when taking any kind of look at the COVID-19 crisis, the cultural revolution underway, and the all-too-relevant economic transformation we are experiencing step-by-step. Now, as with any narrative, however, it's not just about what you see. I've come to learn that it's what you don't see clearly that often winds up opening your eyes. I was aware early on myself that the social network was a whitewashing of history. In fact, it only makes sense. Biopics like this can't go too far in presenting the subjects, protagonist, maybe in this case, antagonist, in a negative light without attracting lawsuits. So you can imagine that there was a certain amount of negotiation involved either at the book stage or while Aaron Sorkin was writing the screenplay. Alternatively, one could easily start with the assumption that the book and or movie are a well-produced limited hangout. Another concept that I probably did not have the words to describe concisely until 2021. Now, this point, though, was elaborated on in a podcast that I briefly followed a couple years ago called The Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, hosted by none other than, well, Jeff Rubin. My teen years were spent tuning into College Humor, an early producer of internet sketch comedy videos where Jeff was an early employee and a cast member of the company's short-lived MTV show. In an episode released September 11, 2012, Ruben interviews Ben Blumenfeld, now named Ben Blumenrose, a former designer at Facebook. That's this handsome gentleman right to my right. Now, Blumenfeld describes his five-year tenure at Facebook positively. Ruben asks about how the social network stood up to scrutiny uh, and how accurate it was with Blumenfeld praising it as being a well-produced, entertaining movie. There were, however, two major things that he pushed back on. The first was Jesse Eisenberg's portrayal, which he said came across as too neurotic compared to the real-life Zuckerberg, who Blumenfeld described as being more calculating, quote-unquote. Then there was the glaring omission of one character in particular. I quote, Dustin Moskovitz was barely in there, and Dustin was a huge part of Facebook, right? And so we're like, where's Dustin in the whole thing? 
I think there was one scene in it where they like made Dustin like Dustin's like, hey, Zuck, what's this? Dustin's like a really smart engineer. He's not a moron like in the one scene he has. Now, it's true. While Moskovitz is present in the film and is acknowledged as a co-founder and founding shareholder, he is relegated to a bit character whose largest contribution was inadvertently inspiring Zuckerberg to add the relationship status feature to Facebook, uh, which is presented as the thing that was missing. Now, the interview does provide one more particularly notable insight into the mindset at Facebook. When Ruben asks how the movie affected the culture at Facebook, he replied, it did become a little bit annoying. Like, what did you think of the movie? It's like, I don't. I think about, like, changing the world. He says like a lot. But he, he, he was thinking about changing the world. Now, for his part, Muscovitz seems to agree. When the movie trailer dropped back in 2010, he wrote, It is interesting to see my past rewritten in a way that emphasizes things that didn't matter and leaves out things that really did. I'm just going to choose to remember that we drank ourselves silly and had a lot of sex with co-eds. I'm very curious to see how Mark turns out in the end. The plot of the book slash script unabashedly attack him. But I actually felt like a lot of his positive qualities came out truthfully in the trailer, soundtrack aside. Okay, so if we didn't get to know Muscovitz through the most widely known dramatization of events, then we must ask, again, who is Dustin Muscovitz? And before we even get around to that, what else was left out from the story that could help frame our thinking? Answering the first question first, two things pop to mind right away. Chris Hughes, this gentleman on screen now, was another Zuckerberg roommate and Facebook co-founder who was virtually non-existent in the movie. In fact, I don't remember him at all. I remember a passing reference, a jab at his expense. He left Facebook a few years later after the founding, to work on Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. Then, in March 2009, he took a position at General Catalyst, a venture capital firm whose portfolio includes a number of familiar companies. You see on screen here, we have Coinbase, Discord, DoorDash, Meta LLC, Snapchat, Stripe, Substack, Telegram, and Y Combinator. Indeed, this short selection of companies crosses over with those funded by Y Combinator, as seen in last week's report, and Y Combinator itself. Even weirder is the continued appearance of supposedly dissident platforms such as Substack and now Telegram. How can it be that the same people behind Facebook and Snapchat are also funding the very platforms? that many of us have come to rely on for our continued expression of free speech. How can it be? Now, there's one more company on that list that I'm sure caught your eye slash ear. But in my preliminary research, it's possible that Meta LLC isn't what you might think it is. And I'm going to circle back to this 
in a future episode. I'm going to go ahead and say it's related and not related. It'll, it'll make sense later. Now, Hughes had a busy year in 2010. Oops. Spoiler alert. Well, he had a busy year in 2010 founding a social media network called Jumo, intended to index and promote charities and humanitarian causes. While the term effective altruism doesn't make an appearance, it's pretty clear that it's what it was. The name hadn't really been used in that context yet, but this this was this was effective altruism. Now, I spoiled it a moment ago, but guess who was brought in as an advisor? None other than Jeffrey Sachs. Now, Sachs, of course, is the chair of the Lancet Commission on COVID-19, who seems to be dipping his toes into dissidence by allowing discussion about the SARS-CoV-2 lab leak theory to go ahead in the formal context of the Lancet Commission. You can see, of course, if you haven't watched it, he had a uh, discussion with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. about the lab leak theory, Peter Daszak, EcoHealth Alliance, and how, oh, he didn't know that he had these conflicts of interest. Anyway, he's talking about it now. Okay, now in July 2010, the Joint United Nations Program on HIV AIDS, or UN AIDS, appointed Hughes to a 17-member high-level commission tasked with spearheading a, quote, social and political action campaign over the coming year aimed at galvanizing support for effective HIV prevention programs. Now, keep in mind, I actually switched this around. The founding of JUMO happened first, or sorry, happened second. He was first appointed to UNAIDS for this commission, who told him, hey, you got to go out and do this, you know, promotion program to get people wanting to help people with HIV AIDS. So he goes and he starts JUMO with Jeffrey Sachs and some other folks. So that's the order of operations there. Now, the following year, he reportedly attended the highly secretive Bilderberg meeting in St. Moritz, Switzerland. Then Hughes co-founded the Economic Security Project in 2016, funded by huge philanthropic names, including the Rockefeller Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Ford Foundation, Wallace Global Fund, and others who are not on screen. Interestingly, in May 2019, rather, Hughes wrote a New York Times op-ed calling for the separation of Facebook proper from its acquired subsidiaries, Instagram and WhatsApp. Now that's Chris Hughes. I mentioned there was one more thing into mind. And I've brought this meme up here that I borrowed from a website called wikispooks.com, which is a good website. For those listening on the podcast, it reads, Facebook created, Facebook created, so Facebook was created, same day Pentagon kills a similar project. And yes, that is our premise here. Our premise is, could that not be a coincidence? Now, look, looking past even the incomplete origin story of Facebook that we've already acknowledged, we find a strange coincidence here that suggests an even deeper mystery that remains to be completely fleshed out. Facebook was officially founded on February 4, 2004, 
the very next day after the United States Pentagon had pulled the plug on a spookily similar project. Yes, LifeLog, as it was called, was designed by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, to, quote, build a database tracking a person's entire existence. It would take in all of a subject's experience from phone numbers dialed and email messages viewed to every breath taken, step made, and place gone. As described in the project's call for solicitations on screen now, DARPA sought to develop a system that captures, stores, and makes accessible the flow of one person's experience in and interactions with the world in order to support a broad spectrum of associates slash assistants and other system capabilities. Now, that actually sounds an awful lot like what Facebook became, doesn't it? But it doesn't stop there. This excerpt from the same solicitation request reads as follows. LifeLog can be used as a standalone system to serve as a powerful automated multimedia diary and scrapbook. By using a search engine interface, the user can easily retrieve a specific thread of past transactions or recall an experience from a few seconds ago or from many years earlier in as much detail as is desired, including imagery, audio, or video replay of the event. In addition to operating in this standalone mode, LifeLog can also serve as a subsystem to support a wide variety of other applications, including personal, medical, financial, and other types of assistance, and various teaching and training tools. As increasing numbers of people acquire life logs, collaborative tasks could be facilitated by the interaction of life logs. And properly anonymized access to life log data might support medical research and the early detection of an emerging epidemic. Application of the lifelog abstraction structure in a synthesizing mode will eventually allow synthetic game characters and humanoid robots to lead more realistic lives. However, the initial lifelog development is tightly focused on the standalone system capabilities and does not include the broader class of assistive training and other applications that may eventually, may ultimately rather, be supported. Now, isn't that exciting? Seriously, this seems to follow Facebook's evolution chronologically. It's laid out in the plan sort of like this. First, social media. You start with a single platform slash service accessible on a website where people provide all their own information, including status updates, pictures, videos, conversations, check-ins at local businesses, work and education history, so on and so forth, and make it so you can easily revisit those memories at any time by scrolling through old albums, so on. Next step, digital ID. Leverage the information you've gathered to expand a broader underlying infrastructure that allows for the creation of digital identities, which allow users to transition their finances and medical records online and collect and track things like steps taken and day-to-day -day mental health status, for example. Then, pandemic preparedness. 
use the data collected, both at this point voluntarily and involuntarily, for medical research, contact tracing, and even to identify when an infectious disease outbreak is afoot. And lastly, step four, the metaverse. Reveal that the world is now ready to transition into a world of virtual slash augmented reality because, well, we're all at home avoiding contact so as to avoid catching this scary gain-of-function virus, right? Now, this model, this makes a lot of sense to me, okay? If LifeLog really was the direct precursor to Facebook, it presents a plausible explanation for the major events over Facebook's creation and lifespan, including its 2014 acquisition of Oculus, a virtual reality system, and its strange shift in focus, oops, to the metaverse in 2021. It also shows that right from the outset, the US military was planting a pandemic preparedness seed into the very premise of the platform. Take a look at what Facebook's co-founders and best friends have been up to prior to and during and over the course of the last 18 years. Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, founded the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, whose pandemic contributions include funding the COVID-19 Therapeutics Accelerator, alongside the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Welcome Trust, BioMerieux, who contributed to the building of the Wuhan Institute of Virology's Biosafety Level 4 lab, by the way. Uh, of course, before, ah, we'll get to it later. Eli Lilly, Gilead Sciences, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Pfizer. Sean Parker founded the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy, which claims to have contributed greatly to the development of CRISPR technology and DNA programming and genome editing in the fight against cancer. Larry Summers, aside from his powerful positions at the World Bank, U.S. Treasury, and Harvard University, was part of the 1993 inaugural class of the World Economic Forum's Global Leaders for Tomorrow program, alongside Bill Gates, Angela Merkel, Jose Manuel Barroso, Richard Branson, Bono, George Stephanopoulos, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, Yo-Yo Ma, and Nicholas Sarkozy. Chris Hughes, as we've seen, was brought in to participate in a UN AIDS commission aimed at galvanizing support for effective HIV prevention programs immediately before launching JUMO, an exercise in effective altruism in all but name, with advice from Jeffrey Sachs. This following his work, of course, with General Catalyst, which saw a major crossover with other effective altruism ventures and biomedical startups. And then there's Eduardo Saverin, who co-founded B Capital Group, a venture capital firm that invested $820 million in growth stage startups, transforming large industries and scaling rapidly in response to the declared COVID-19 pandemic including the rapid digitization of business finances and activities. You saw an opportunity there. The Winklevoss twins, Cameron and Tyler, 
co-founded Winklevoss Capital Management, whose major investments include large amounts of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptocurrencies, as well as Gemini, a large cryptocurrency exchange. Now, Gemini halted withdrawals from some customer accounts because of their exposure to FTX's collapse through their partner, Genesis, which we covered last week, I believe, maybe the week before. Okay. Peter Thiel co-founded Palantir, a military contractor specializing in mass surveillance, whose clientele includes the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Security Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, Department of Homeland Security, and their Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Division. In the COVID-19 crisis, Palantir was tapped by the Department of Health and Human Services to provide the primary data collection platform around testing for SARS-CoV-2. Teal also invested in a biotech startup called Abcelera, based here in Vancouver, which collaborated with Eli Lilly to produce their monoclonal antibody treatments against the infection. So, what about Dustin? <laughs> There's no particular reason why I've danced around diving deeper into Dustin Moskovitz up until this point, okay? Such is the nature of the rabbit hole. Just when I think I've reached the bottom and I'm ready to move forward, the ground collapses underneath me and takes me a story deeper. But fear not, critical thinkers. Knowledge can be acquired quickly, but understanding takes time. Let what I've shared today sit in your mind over the next week. Much of my story today that I've shared was possible because I recalled areas of my life where I actually brushed up against these people and their narratives, even if just as a distant consumer of their products or watching their movie or reading their book. So how about you? Heck, we've all used Facebook at some time or another. Does this proposed version of events seem to make sense? Is the, is the plot thickening thusly? And remember, this investigation revolves around trying to get to the bottom of Sam Bankman-Fried, the spectacular collapse of FTX, and the shockingly relevant consequences of the recent weeks. I didn't know this line of inquiry would lead me to Facebook. But now I see that these are clearly deeply interconnected things. And we'll leave it there for today. Um, on a personal note, I intended to write this week's article and prepare the script for this video over the course of the week, which would allow me to return to my usually reliable schedule of broadcasting on Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern time. However, I, uh, I'm very sad. I wrote in my script, I am devastated. Uh, I'll just be blunt. I'm very sad to share that my family, Kitty, my cat named Turtle fell very ill this past week very quickly, culminating in her passing on Wednesday. This is a longer and more complicated story that I've shared with friends, family, and confidants, including some of you either reading the script on Substack or watching this stream right now. 
I have felt a bit traumatized because of how fast she passed and a little in shock at the sudden absence from my life. But in this time of pain and loss, so many people jumped at the chance to catch me and my partner, Sam, and help break our fall. I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. You've shown me once again that you are the best of humanity, and you have reminded me why I choose to walk among you. You have all of my love and gratitude. This is Turtle. You can see her uh, on the left there. That's her in her Bat-Cat costume. And uh, she's a wonderful cat. So thank you for accommodating me and dealing with me and uh, uh, for your patience is what I'm trying to say. Now, if you have enjoyed the show today and have been watching live, please drop a rumble rant or a tip if you're on Rockfin. We may even be back up and running on YouTube soon as partners, ready to accept your super chats there too. We're streaming there right now, but I don't think we're technically monetized. Crat. But most importantly, okay, as you see on screen here before you leave, go sign up as a member on our Locals community at www.roundingtheearth.locals.com. You can even, if you're watching on Rumble, go to just directly underneath this video. You'll see a red button that says Locals on it. You can click that and it'll take you right there. At Locals, we are hosting weekly insider discussions about topics we're not yet prepared to go fully public with, but bear discussing nonetheless. We're very thankful we've seen an influx of both free members and paid supporters over the last two weeks, in no small part due to the excellent work of Matthew Crawford on the topic of FTX and the bigger picture. If you have not yet read Matthew's viral article, like I said at the beginning, it's time you do so, as I consider this Rounding the News special investigation to be supplementary to his piece. You can even snag yourself a free month of premium support on Locals using the promo code included in the pinned comment and the, the one that's on screen right now here after which you can choose to continue to support us by paying as little as $5 a month to keep us going and gain access to behind-the-scenes discussions that we're keeping within our more intimate community. But it is not exclusively a paid thing. You can become a free member of the community. That is our number one priority, expanding our reach, expanding our community and our network. So, okay, that's it. That's enough for me. I've been rambling. I've been Liam Sturgis. You can find me at www.liamsturgis.com or on Twitter at the Liam Sturgis. And thank you for watching. We will see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>